Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to a special Ask the Expert Encore presentation of ADHD, Children, Meds, and Heart Safety, a tale of ADHD in public health. This special Encore presentation features Dr. Sue Visser, the lead epidemiologist for the Child Development Studies team within the National Center for on National Center on Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Our encore presentation was presented as part of the National Public Health Week. Since our original broadcast, she has attained a doctorate in public health. The Ask the Expert webcast is presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. A recording of today's Encore broadcast will be available through the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, helpforadhd.org, underneath Ask the Expert in about two business days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you used today to join us in the for the recording. The recording will be available about 30 minutes following our presentation. If you would like to talk with the, with the health information specialist for further information on today's topic, please contact us Monday through Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time at 1-800-233-4050 or online at helpforadhd.org. Following today's presentation, a survey will appear on your screen. Please take a moment to complete the survey and let us know how we did. Your feedback helps us to plan webcasts and events that provide the latest information on ADHD to you, our community members. For those of you who would like to submit a question to be answered by the National Resource Center on ADHD by a member of our health information team, written questions can be submitted in the questions box on your toolbar as indicated by the red arrow shown in the slide and in the questions box underneath the video presentation. You must include your email address with your question in order to receive a response. Our team cannot respond to questions that do not have an email address. This is an encore presentation, and we are unable to offer any live questions during the webcast. However, we are happy to answer your questions by email in about one business day. Please remember to include your email address with your question. Dr. Visser will not be answering questions submitted today. Thank you for joining us for this encore presentation, and we hope that you find Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's webinar, Children, Medication, and Heart Safety, a Tale of ADHD in Public Health. This webinar is part of the monthly Ask the Expert series sponsored by the National Resource Center on ADHD. The National Resource Center, or the NRC, is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is co-sponsoring our webinar today. We are pleased to welcome today's expert, Sue Visser, the lead epidemiologist of the Child Development Studies Team at the National Center on Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities. 
Our webinar this month is a special event for the National Public Health Week. This year's focus is return on investment, how public health saves lives and money through awareness and prevention. Sue Visser, our expert today, is a recognized researcher in the analysis and design of long-term population-based studies of neurobehavioral me, neuro and mental health conditions, including ADHD and Tourette syndrome. She has researched the estimates of how many people are affected by ADHD, the rates of medication treatment among children and young people, and the factors associated with medication treatment for ADHD. Ms. Visser served on the committee served as the committee epidemiologist for the American Academy of Pediatrics most recent ADHD Diagnostic and Treatment Guidelines Committee. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's expert, Sue Visser. Ms. Visser, if you would like to begin. Thank you so much, Karen. Um, I'm very pleased to be here today uh, to talk to you about this, the story of ADHD in public health. And my goal today is really to present this story um, and, and tell you about how the broader public health system works to protect the health and well-being of the American people using the specific tangible example of ADHD medications and cardiac safety. And before I begin, I'd just like to draw your attention back to the fact that I'm not a doctor. I'm the lead epidemiologist of the Child Development Studies team here at CDC. And um, I'll be telling the story to you really as participant observer in what led to an FDA recommendation about ADHD medication and cardiac safety. You can go ahead and advance the slide for me, Karen. First, happy National Public Health Awareness Week. Uh, sometimes the easiest way to understand what we do in the fields of public health is to learn about the 10 essential services of public health. And these services vary from things like monitoring the health status of American people uh, to diagnosing and investigating health problems, informing and educating, mobilizing community partnerships, uh, developing policies and plans, enforcing laws and regulations that protect the health and, and safety of, of people. We link people to needed health services, assure competent public workforce, evaluate effectiveness, we evaluate lots of things actually, and, and conduct a broad range of research for insights and innovative, innovative solutions to health problems. And no one agency can do all of these services, and so we really rely on a broader public health system to cover each of these essential services of public health. Please advance. This is what is called a jelly bean plot. Um, and this jelly bean plot of the public health system exists in various forms in, uh, in the field. And it's really to draw your attention to the fact that there are quite a number of, um, of different components of the public health system from the center orange ball of public health agencies, both federal and local to um, clinicians, fire departments, schools, drug treatment centers. It's really a, a broad, broad range of different systems that all contribute to ensuring the public health of the nation. Please advance. Now focusing in for a moment on the federal 
public health system. This is the Department of Health and Human Services. And our secretary, uh, Kathleen Sebelius, has a goal that, um, that we all work to, um, to ensure that all Americans live healthier, more prosperous, and more productive lives. Now, in order to do this, we work together in, as a, a federal public health system. Each of these red boxes is a component of the U.S. Public Health Service. And many of these agencies were working together in the, um, the story I'll tell you today. Um, specifically, the, the Food and Drug Administration certainly was the lead agency in this, this effort. Uh, CDC contributed, the Health Resources and Services Administration as well, um, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, ARC, as well as many others, um, both in a direct and indirect way. Advance. Now, these public health agencies work together to collectively um, contribute to the following FDA drug safety announcement. This is looking forward to the very, very end of our story. And on November 1st of 2011, the FDA released the safety announcement indicating that healthcare professionals should take special note that stimulant products and atomoxetine should generally not be used in patients with serious health problems, heart problems, or for whom an increase in blood pressure or heart rate would be problematic. Patients treated with ADHD medications should be periodically monitored for changes in heart rate and blood pressure. But in general, patients should continue to use their medicine for the treatment of ADHD as prescribed by their healthcare professional. Now, much work went into coming to this announcement. Advanced slide. So let's start really at the very beginning. Uh, this is a screenshot of FDA's MedWatch adverse event report system. And uh, this is a voluntary system that FDA hosts to allow clinicians to report in any adverse event that they may want to associated with, with some form of, of treatment or, or specifically medications. You can go to the website and report an adverse event online. Uh, you can send it via fax, via mail. Probably carrier pigeon would work. But the goal is to get as much information as the clinician wishes to, um, to submit into the FDA for their consideration so that they can monitor um, passively this, this, um, this system and note when there's a high number of adverse events associated with a specific medication or a set of medications. And in this case, um, over the years of 2004, 5, 6, and that, in that range, there were a number of reports about ADHD medication and arrhythmia, cardiac arrest, stroke, which is also known as uh, cerebrovascular accident, myocardial infarction, and sudden death. Advance slide, please. And this is one of the suspicious adverse events that the FDA noticed during those, um, those years preceding the, the formal investigation. This is an actual event that was reported by a clinician. And it stated, a pathologist reported a 13-year-old male died suddenly uh, during football practice, secondary to a suspected cardiac arrhythmia or a irregular heartbeat. 
The autopsy revealed a hypertrophied and enlarged heart with anomalies of the tricuspid valve. So the heart um, muscle was thickened and enlarged. And there was, there was something that was inconsistent. There was something that was not quite right with the tricuspid valve. Methylphenidate, or um, uh, which is the generic of, of Ritalin, was present within a therapeutic range. And it is unknown how long the patient had been taking the medication. In this case, uh, this was a very brief report, but it did indicate that there were probably some underlying heart problems that this child had, and whether or not it was known prior to um, the sudden death is, is not explicitly stated. Uh, but there were additional adverse events that were reported within the MedWatch adverse event reporting system that simply stated that you know, a child had taken even one dose of um, an ADHD medication and collapsed and, and died suddenly. And, and these, uh, these reports really shocked um, and, and concerned individuals who were monitoring the system. And that led to action. Please advance. So what they did was they tallied across the entire um, adverse event reporting system to, to really look at how many adverse events are we really talking about. Because one or two, you know, it's, it's sometimes possible to pick up really tragic events um, that are very, very rare. And you, know, you need to tally them across and then try to estimate how frequently this is occurring in the population um, of which we're interested. And so in this case, they found 54 total incidents of cardiovascular incident or stroke and 25 sudden deaths, 19 of which were pediatric. And they also found that cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, and sudden unexplained death were among the top 50 adverse events reported after use of amphetamines and methylphenidate. Advance. So in response to this tally, the FDA noted that it was um, important to assemble uh, two relevant committees that could um, review the evidence that they had compiled and help inform FDA's action. And in this case, they assembled the Drug Safety and Risk Management Committee as well as the Pediatric Advisory Committee. And the intent was to ask each of these committees to consider the feasibility of various epidemiologic approaches. And they really wanted to find out, is there a population-based way to study? That's really what epidemiology is, the population-based way of studying patterns of disease expression um, to further investigate the safety signal that was raised and to address specific methodological considerations, which we'll talk, to, talk about in, in just a moment. But the really the real underlying research question was, do ADHD medications cause cardiovascular incident or sudden death? And in order to answer that question, they needed to know what would we expect the rate of these adverse events to be in the general population of, of children? And then they also needed to know what the prevalence of these adverse events were among populations of children taking ADHD medication so that they could compare the two and answer the question, is the prevalence of these adverse events higher among children taking ADHD medication uh, than in the general population of, of children? In order to get at these, there's a big need for population-based data. 
advanced slide, please. And that is where CDC uh, was brought in by the Food and Drug Administration. So the, um, the primary question at hand was, you know, we need to understand the epidemiology of ADHD. We need to understand how common it is, um, the estimated national total of children who've been diagnosed with ADHD, how many of them are taking ADHD medication. That really informed the FDA early on was turning to um, a collaboration by CDC and the Health Resources Services Administration, HRSA, who had been collaborating on parent surveys that included questions about ADHD and ADHD medication. And the data from the National Survey of Children's Health from uh, the 2003 and 2004 data collection time period had just recently come out of the field. And uh, in 2005, we published a, a epidemiology report that described at the time that there were about 4.4 uh, million children who had been given the diagnosis of ADHD uh, by 2003 and 4. About half of them were taking ADHD medication. That um, estimate was about 2.5 million children nationally between the ages of 4 and 17. And this information was very, very important because what they needed to do was find the denominator, that bottom number out of which they wanted to calculate what the rate of these events were out of that, that total population of children who had ADHD and out of the total probably um, exposed to ADHD medications. Um, both of those, um, all of those um, indicators actually were very, very important in trying to calculate what we call the background rate of these adverse events, such as stroke, myocardial infarction, and sudden death. And one of the things that they did was they also um, went through and used administrative claims data to look at the number of pediatric prescriptions that had been written and then calculate an estimate uh, of these events based on those data. And what they found was that there was about 0.2 to 0.5 per million pediatric prescriptions for amphetamines, and then 0.2 to 0.5 per million pediatric prescriptions for methylphenidate uh, for these adverse events. What was really elusive was trying to find the background rate of these um, events in the general population. Because as you can imagine, uh, a typical, typically developing six, seven, eight, nine-year-old um, boy or girl doesn't typically have stroke. You know, they, they, um, it's not common to have a heart attack at that age. And so, even finding the very, very few incidents in the literature or in the data and calculating a background rate for the the uh, typically developing healthy population of children was very, very difficult. So these are some of the methodological uh, limitations that were presented to the advisory committees. Um, advance slide, please. Over the period of February to March in 2006. First, the Drug Safety Committee was convened in February. And they were presented with, with all of the data that the FDA had, the adverse events, um, the, the tallies, the likely background rate of the adverse events relative to the, the prescriptions that have been written. And um, there was an open public hearing of which I was able to attend. 
and a number of, of people spoke out, parents of uh, children who had passed away very suddenly, and, and they didn't really have closure, did not understand what had happened. Uh, there were people there uh, representing the, the belief that we are really over-medicating, over-diagnosing and over-medicating ADHD and that this is a natural consequence to those actions. Um, there were representatives from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, all um, speaking to the very uh, important need to identify children with ADHD and intervene um, oftentimes with medication for collective familial benefit. And all of this was extremely emotionally charged. Out of this, this public meeting came a motion from uh, Dr. Neeson, I believe, a motion to vote on the recommendation of a black box for all stimulant medications approved to treat ADHD. And this is um, quite, quite a move. I was sitting in the front row and was surrounded by the media. Um, that's, that's where they, they tend to sit, who had attended many of these public hearings in the past, these committee meetings. And there was an, an absolute audible gasp once this motion um, came up. The belief was that this was such a, um, a strong reaction, such a strong move by the committee. And FDA does not need to respond um, and, and take the advice of these committees, but they often do. Um, they are assembled to provide the expertise that, that is needed to advance their objectives and protect the safety of, of the American people. And so this was a really strong move. It's literally a, a black box that sits almost like a skull and crossbones on, on a, a package um, and a prescription. And it, it certainly gains the attention of, of clinicians before they, they write those pres prescriptions. And that motion passed. Um, eight voted in favor, seven opposed, one abstained. And then a second motion was put forward recommending a patient's guide for all medications approved to treat ADHD. You can see the list on the right-hand side of the slide there um, that indicates uh, the medication guides that are still to this day available. Um, as well as the black box warning, which the, the black box warning that's sitting be below um, those two bullets is not the black box warning that, that exists today. Um, it actually pertains to, um, to uh, um, just a general black box warning. Um, but these, these warnings still exist today. The motion to vote on the recommendation for the patient's guide was passed uh, 15 in favor, one abstained again. And this was in advance of all research that was to be conducted. The committee, um, the Drug Safety Committee, actually did not discuss the methodological concerns that FDA um, wanted them to. Um, neither did the pediatric committee that met about a month later in March. However, the pediatric committee did state that they were not in favor of the black box. They were in favor of the patient guide. And um, advance slide, please. 
and the press really followed this this process very closely. It was not clear whether or not FDA would would move um, towards including these strong drug alerts, um, but they did. And you may have noticed, if you're a parent or a family or a clinician, you may have noticed the, the strong coverage that was out there about this issue. It certainly resulted in uptick in public inquiries here at CDC about the issue. And um, it was completely understandable. I think we did not have enough information at the time, which is why more research was needed. And um, it was very, very difficult to get a strong sense of where the research was going to take us. Now, notably, during this time period, uh, prescription patterns for ADHD medication continued to, um, to increase over time. They were on an upward trend uh, before all of this happened, and they continued on an upward, uh, in an upward pattern. And um, that's in contrast to the patterns of antidepressants among adolescents following FDA public health alerts regarding suicidal ideation, in which those patterns really, the rates dropped off precipitously for prescriptions for antidepressants among adolescents. And Barry and colleagues in 2012, uh, just this past year, wrote a really interesting article about the fact that the media coverage for this particular issue of ADHD medications and, and cardiac safety was much more balanced. That's the term they used. Uh, that while they were reporting on, um, on the concerns, the cardiac concerns, and what FDA was, was doing to try to address this, they were also reporting on how important it is for uh, children to continue their medication if they need it, and um, that this can be a life-changing treatment for children and, and the families that surround them. So I think that's, that's really important to note. Advanced slide, please. So the FDA did ultimately take action um, in addition to adding those uh, or recommending the black box and, uh, and medication guides be added to uh, prescription boxes of ADHD medications, all of them. They also rationalized that blood pressure and heart rate increases had been seen in patients treated with methylphenidate, amphetamine, and, and anamoxetine, and that they did have in hand these reports of serious cardiovascular events with the use of ADHD medications. And so as a result, FDA and the Agency for Health Research Quality sponsored several studies of serious cardiovascular events and ADHD drug use. Um, and two of them were pediatric, two of them were adult. Advanced slide, please. And while these uh, studies were being funded and implemented, initiated out in the field, there was an interesting uh, statement that was released. Um, the American Heart Association came together and in the Journal of the American Heart Association, which is uh, called Circulation, um, veteran colleagues published a very, very controversial consensus statement. And the statement read, the consensus of the community is that it is reasonable and useful 
to obtain electrocardiograms as part of the evaluation of children being considered for stimulant drug therapy. We recognize that there are no clinical trials to inform us on this topic and that there is variance in opinion on this topic. And um, this was really controversial at the time. Um, pediatricians were, were very concerned that they, you know, may have to go back and, uh, and get ECGs for patients who were already receiving ADHD medication treatment. Um, I think that um, the balance was, was struck through discussions within the clinical community about what was appropriate, what did we know, and when should we act. Advance slide, please. Now, the first study that came out, I understand it had already been funded by FDA and NIMH before the other studies were convened. Um, and this was a matched case control study that was based on both retrospective uh, interviews where they actually, you know, called up families and also medical record review. And they compared the stimulant use in healthy kids in the United States who died suddenly versus the stimulant use in children who died as passengers in a motor vehicle accident, which was a really interesting and, and really brilliant epi contrast. And the key findings were this. Among 564 healthy children who died suddenly, 10 were taking stimulants. And among the same number of children who died in a motor vehicle accident as a passenger, only two were taking stimulants. Now these are very, very small numbers, but the conclusion that they made was that there may be an association between the use of stimulants and sudden death in healthy children. However, there were some big problems with the study, um, very well stated, I think, by the authors. And um, one of the major limitations was that if you have a child who dies suddenly um, and you have no explanation, no reason for the death, the parent is going to remember everything about the context of that death. They're going to remember what the child was taking, vitamins they were taking, what they ate that day. I mean, it's you're racking your brain trying to figure out what happened to your baby. Uh, whereas if the child died as a passenger in a motor vehicle accident, you have closure, you know what happened, um, you know the cause of death. And so the, um, there may have been a recall bias in favor of remembering stimulant use for those who, um, those ch children who died suddenly versus those who died in a motor vehicle accident. And for that limitation and for several others, the FDA concluded that this study should not serve as a basis for parents to stop a child's stimulant medication. Parents should discuss concerns about the use of these medicines with the prescribing healthcare professional. Advance slide, please. And then the second study came out by Cooper and colleagues in 2011, and this was a peer review of administrative records and claims data. And it was conducted with um, over 1,200,000 children um, and young adults between the ages of 2 and 24 years of age. 
Now, when you multiply the, the number of uh, participants that you have in, in the sample or the number of individuals, you multiply that by the number of years included in your database worth of data, you get this person years um, number. And there were over two and a half million person years included in, in the study. The key findings on this one were that there were seven serious cardiovascular events in current ADHD medication users, four strokes, and three sudden cardiac deaths. All seven of them, um, interestingly, occurred in Medicaid patients, and that was never really fully explained. There were no association um, documented between serious cardiovascular events and ADHD medication use. You can see the hazard ratio there. And if you're used to interpreting these, um, you know, if, if it spans one, it's not statistically significant. Um, and the confidence interval there does span one. And the rate um, that they calculated for these adverse events were, um, was 1.87 events per 100,000 person years. And, um, Anyone, even for for the most tragic adverse event, as such as sudden death, um, would see that as a very small absolute risk. Even though, I mean, the the adverse event is is completely tragic, and so it's something to take very, very, very seriously. And so the FDA very cautiously and carefully stated that the results were not consistent with the seven-fold increase that was seen in sudden death reported through Gould's case control study. But they wanted to state that there was a small to modest increase in risk that they could not exclude. Next slide, please. So Habel and colleagues, in, in a little bit later in the year, I believe, um, released their study. It was actually a set of two studies that was based on an adult population of 440,000 adults, 25 to 64 years of age. The first study looked at uh, heart attacks and sudden cardiac deaths, and the second looked at strokes. And you can see in the key findings here, using 806,000 person years of follow-up, that the number of adverse events is much higher, because of course this is an adult population, even though it's a, a young to moderate adult population. So we saw um, that, that they reported out about 1,300 uh, cases of myocardial infarction, 296 cases of sudden cardiac death, and 575 cases of stroke. When they adjusted um, the rate for various, um, various components, um, various factors, they found that the rate of serious cardiovascular events for current use versus non-use of ADHD medication was 0.83. And you can see there that the confidence interval does not include one, and the um, rate ratio is less than one, which means there's actually a protective effect of taking ADHD medication on these adverse cardiovascular events. Um, the Authors concluded that among young and middle-aged adults, stimulant use was not associated with an increased risk of serious cardiovascular events, and they reasoned that the protective effect that they documented, although it was um, a small, um, you know, it's just slightly protective, um, they reasoned that that was probably because individuals, young adults, who were taking ADHD medications were healthier overall 
than um, those who were not taking ADHD medications, which was a really interesting finding. Please advance slide. So that led all of that research and the committee hearings and all the feedback that they received led to the final FDA recommendation stated earlier that um, for the use of medications to treat ADHD, the recommendations have not changed. That healthcare professionals should continue to take special note that stimulant products and atomoxetine should generally not be used with people who have serious health problems or for whom it's really dangerous to increase their blood pressure or heart rate and that patients treated with ADHD meds should be periodically monitored for changes in heart rate or blood pressure. Um, but ultimately, patients should continue to use their medicine for the treatment of ADHD as prescribed by the healthcare professional. Next slide, please. So just some conclusions. Um, I hope that this, this story and this series of events led you to the conclusion that working to protect the public's health is a cross-public health system endeavor. And in this case, we saw that um, we had clinicians who contributed by reporting through this voluntary adverse event reporting system, that clinicians and the public contributed to the committee and hearing participation um, of the FDA open hearings and public hearings and, and committees that uh, HRSA and CDC contributed through data collection, epidemiologic analysis, and, and synthesizing those data for use across the public health system. And that research was conducted across the Food and Drug Administration, ARC, and the National Institutes of Health to bring these data to fruition that led to the recommendations that ultimately indicated that there was only a very, very small absolute risk and that uh, clinical practice should basically remain unchanged. Now, many other systems may have been passively or, or directly, uh, indirectly or directly influenced um, uh, influencing this process and there, are, as you saw, the public health system is vast and so there probably were more intersections. But one thing is clear, parents and families are key stakeholders but also participants of our work and we could not do what we do to protect the health and well-being of the public if we did not have close participation and feedback from parents and families um, and specifically in this case, parents and families of children uh, with ADHD. Advanced slide. So thank you, that's all I have for today. Feel free to email me if you have questions after this. I'm certainly here to take questions in the next half hour. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you like. Advanced slide. And um, just in closing, happy Public Health Awareness Week. Thank you. And we, would, we are preparing to take questions. If any of our participants have questions, please enter them now, as you see here. And Ms. Visser, thank you very much. I think that uh, many of our participants have found your story of what has, what happened in 19, I'm sorry, in 2006 concerning heart medication, um, forgive me, ADHD medications and heart events. And we are ready to begin with our questions. Um, so let us ah, 
So our first question comes from Julie. And Julie has been playing, paying close attention to what you have just discussed. And she asks, if I have questions and concerns about heart medication, heart health, and medication safety, who do I talk to? The cardiologist, the pediatrician? And she also follows up her question with, how is heart health monitored? I think that you know the right place to start there is uh, with your treating physician, whoever that is for, um, for ADHD. If it's a pediatrician, I think it's fair to start there and discuss your concerns and any sort of familial risk that, that you might have, any concerns that you might have about the symptoms the child might be um, expressing. Um, but if you're, you know, Going to a psychiatrist, uh, they're also just as, as capable of assessing the child for cardiac risk. Um, a cardiologist is probably, you know, going to get engaged when there is a demonstrated concern. Familial history would, would be sufficient concern under most, in most cases. But I would, I would start with your treating physician and let them guide you. Um, to the second piece of the question, Certainly an electrocardiogram which uh, looks at the electrical signals coming from your heart. That's what the American Heart Association recommended as, as a first pass before uh, treating for ADHD with ADHD medications. I think that the, the follow-on discussion that happened in the clinical community certainly suggested that Actually, an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of, of the heart, is probably going to lead to, um, to ruling out the major structural concerns that people have about there being um, a structural defect that's undiagnosed in the child. And these are, you know, cardiac defects um, are very, very common. We study them here at the National Center on Birth Defects and Developmental Disabilities, and um, they can go undiagnosed, um, but they are, they are rare, and um, so it, it's something that, you know, you need to work with your clinicians to try to identify, you know, what is the most appropriate screening procedures given your child's history, behavior, symptoms, and um, you know they can take it from there. I hope that answers your question. I think that may. Our next question comes from Tim, and Tim asks: Are, quest are clinicians required to report adverse events? As you began your tale, you noted that the uh, there is a reporting system in place when something has happened, and it may be medication related. Mm -hmm. um, they are not required, actually. Um, the MedWatch Adverse Event Reporting System is a voluntary system. Um, it's a passive reporting system, and, and that is um, both a blessing and a curse. It, it's a, it can receive any number of uh, reports, but you don't know what the denominator is, and you don't know that you've received all the reports that should have been reported. And so that's why I think the FDA, in this case, was very quick to respond to what they did see, because what comes in tends to be an underestimate of, of what is actually out there. Thank you. Um, we spoke, you've spoken a lot about 
the data for children and young people. Filey wants to know if are there any data on adults and medication safety? Yes, I think you know the the latter two studies um, that were conducted by Hable and colleagues. Um, those were both on uh, young adults, young to moderate uh, middle-aged adults. They they um, referred to them as as for 25 to 64 year year olds. And really, you know, you can see there that there was clearly not a risk associated in, in that study. There was a adjusted rate ratio of, of 0.83, so 83% of the risk among um, for adverse events among people treated with ADHD medication. So I think that um, we do have good data, particularly on this question for adverse events among adults. And I would also say that the MedWatch adverse event reporting system, that is not exclusive to pediatric adverse events. It, it does cover pediatric and adult populations as well. Thank you. We have a question from Annette, and she was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the safety of non-stimulant medications. And she mentioned uh, ones that are often uh, advertised on TV, such as Intuniv or Stratera, if there are heart concerns having to do with the non-stimulants. Mm -hmm. Stratera was included in, in the investigations that I covered, and there actually has been data to suggest that um, that atomoxetine, or which is the uh, another name for, for Stratera, um, that it does result in increased blood pressure and and um, heart rate, and so that is included in the recommendations that you saw today. Um, Intuniv, guanfacine, you know, those those were not being used uh, regularly and and uh, not necessarily FDA approved during certain components of the course of this investigation. And so I don't believe that any investigations have been conducted specifically for those drugs. Thank you. Raphael has a question, and he was wondering, can heart-related side effects show up after taking stimulants after a long period of time, or do these side effects, these concerns, surface usually right after a medication has begun? So basically, is this something that might pop up two, three years into treatment, or is this something that could surface within the first month or so? That's a good question. I, I can't give you an answer on that. I think that's a little bit more clinical course than I'm prepared to speak to. I, I can tell you that the increases in heart rate and blood pressure that I spoke to are, you know, typically are immediate. Um, whether or not they get worse over time or can emerge um, more strongly or more intensely later on, I, I can't speak to that. But these are what are called sympathomimetic amines, and um, they increase the response of the central nervous system. So even respiratory rate can increase. Um, however, you know, I, I just I don't know if there is a you know sort of a developmental course to change in the course of these symptoms over time. 
Thank you. Good question. It is, it is a good question. It's one that uh, we do hear at the National Resource Center on ADHD. We do hear this from members of the community quite often. We, our next question comes from Nina, and she was wondering if you could talk a little bit about a medication holiday and the safety of that. And for our participants who may not have heard that phrase before, medication holiday is a time when, with the advice of your doctor, a child or an adult will cease taking a stimulant medication for a brief amount of time, perhaps a weekend, perhaps a school vacation. And this is why it's given the nickname of medication holiday. But could you talk a little bit about the safety of taking a medication holiday? Certainly. I mean, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any um, any specific concerns about uh, you know, taking a holiday for stimulants. Uh, there are other medications that you really do not want to um, stop taking on your own. Um, steroid, courses of steroids, um, certain antidepressants, um, those can have really, really negative side effects if, if you abruptly stop taking them. But in the case of uh, ADHD stimulants in particular, um, they, you know, tend to be, um, you know, it tends to, to be perfectly reasonable for you to, to take breaks over the weekends. And, and that historically has been much more common than what we see today. Um, there, were, there was a time there where uh, ADHD medication was really restricted more to uh, the day at school, um, homework time perhaps, and then uh, you know, children were not taking it as frequently over the weekends and, and definitely not during the summers. But um, the prescription patterns have changed and the benefit of ADHD medication is, is really appreciated. I'm probably preaching to the, to the crowd here on, on this call, but the benefits are, are so strong and are seen so immediately that um, removing the medication uh, really changes the functional dynamic in the home. And so um, many families are, are opting not to take those holidays. But you know, back to the initial question about its safety, I'm not aware of any um, concerns about uh, safety issues related to taking medication holidays for uh, medications that are approved for, for ADHD treatment and the ADHD medications, uh, stimulant medications in particular. Thank you. Uh, we have a question from Kelly. And she was wondering, should a child without a family history of heart issues have her blood pressure monitored if she's on a medication? So basically, if there's no family history of, of heart concerns, is blood pressure monitoring still necessary? Yes. Uh, I believe you know, in the FDA statement, that was uh, a component um, that it's just, it makes good sense to continue um, at titration visits to uh, have their blood pressure and heart rate periodically monitored. And um, you know, that, that remains true really for, for most medical management plans, having just a baseline assessment of the child's cardiac um, respiratory functioning is really important. Thank you. For our participants, we've had several questions coming in, and we would like to remind you that if you would like a copy of the presentation, you can write to us at nrc 
at chad, C-H-A-D-D dot O-R-G. Again, if you'd like a copy of this presentation, you can email us at nrc at chad, C-H-A-D-D dot O-R-G. And this presentation will also be on the NRC's website at www.help4adhd.org tomorrow. It will be on our website tomorrow at www.help4adhd.org. Now, our next question comes from Cheryl, and she asks, what does the data say about long-acting or extended-release medications versus the short-acting medications and heart safety? That's a great question. Um, you know, the, in, the, in the investigations, there was certainly historically much more short-acting medication that contributed to the evaluation. There's just short-acting medication was, has been used uh, far longer uh, just because it was, it was available first. And so much less of it has contributed to the evaluations. However, there was some, um, particularly in the um, in the Gould study that was represented, and um, I, I do believe they attempted to consider those factors across all the studies, but because the uh, the adverse events were so few and far between, it prohibited them from being able to stratify or um, or divide up the sample into those adverse events that occurred in the context of short-acting medications versus long-acting medications. So I think that there is not um, a clear, um, there's no clear evidence that uh, either short-acting or long-acting has a differential impact on, on cardiac safety. Um, however, I will say that um, you know, in speaking one-on-one with, -on -one with clinicians during this time, the concern was that if you started with a short-acting medication, you know, you have a little bit more control um, over when that medication is going to hit the system and trying to understand whether or not that's safe for the individual. If they're going to have side effects on a short-acting medication, you'll see that immediately, and it, it will work out of the system faster, of course. Um, and so that might be a safer way to, to move forward if you're initiating medication treatment with a child. Um, but aside from that, I haven't, I haven't seen any other data that speaks to that specific question. Thank you. We, we have a question now from Maria. And Maria wants to know, what is the best way to find out about specific medication safety and and their risks to be aware of side effects. How can people get more information on their medication safety and risks? Great question. I, I think that this is something that um, we all have to be our, our, our definitely our, our children's uh, best health advocate and, and also our, our own best health advocate and you know, try to stay informed and, and knowing where to look is important. I think that starting with your, your treating physician, really talking to them, asking about the risks. I mean, I think sometimes we don't always get a full disclosure of all the risks because generally 
um, speaking, for example, ADHD medication is, is generally very, very safe and effective. Um, however, you know, understanding that when you start taking any medication, there could be um, side effects that range from irritating to really, really dangerous and understanding how frequently um, those, those adverse events and side effects are seen, what are the risk factors for them. You know, you know yourself and your child best and you're best able to inform how likely it is that um, your child might uh, experience some of these side effects. So really starting with them, having a really honest, frank conversation with them about the risks and the potential benefits is really the first place to go. And then if you do leave with um, a prescription for, for medication, as you saw in this example, the Food and Drug Administration required that manufacturers develop a patient guide. And in this case, the patient guides, which you can find um, uh, on the website, and if you get the slides at the very bottom where the, I had a, a citation for where the, the medication guides uh, list came from, you can click on each of those medication guides, and if some of them are a 10-page guide that talks all about any of the risks of um, side effects, the adverse events, and specific things that you can do to assess whether or not your risk is, is higher. <clears throat> I think that that's, that's really important using the resources uh, that, that they provide to you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Karen. And she asks, mm -hmm. do some children who are taking, well, she mentions that some children take multiple medications. And she would like to know if the FDA is planning on doing any studies on this where children are taking more than one medication and how this may be affecting them. That I do not know, but I, I will ask my colleagues at the FDA. That's a great question. All right. Our next question now comes from Kenny, and he would like to know, um, what are the short-term and the long-term effects of taking ADHD medications? And this includes both the stimulants and the non-stimulant formulations. And he also would like to know where he can find data on this. Okay, well, that's, that's a big question. Um, we're very much interested in, in that here at CDC. I think the, the short-term outcomes, as, as you put it, um, are, are um, multifaceted. So first, in terms of outcomes, the intended effect is to reduce the ADHD-related symptoms. So um, most people, and, and indeed the, the effectiveness rate for ADHD stimulants especially, um, methphenidate and the amphetamines for ADHD symptoms, the response rate is something like 90%, 95% of, of people will respond and you'll see a reduction in ADHD related behaviors. Um, but along with that, uh, oftentimes you will see these irritating side effects, uh, loss of appetite, uh, sleep problems, sometimes tics. Um, sometimes gastrointestinal symptoms, nausea, um, sometimes you'll see rarely um, psychiatric symptoms and very rarely psychosis. 
suicidal ideation, that, that sort of thing. Um, and anything that, that is troublesome to the patient should be reported because oftentimes what happens is when you start on uh, your first dose of ADHD medication, the goal is to start with a very low dose and titrate up, but even the low dose might be too much for a child depending on age, weight, that sort of thing. Um, but over time, you titrate up until you receive, you know, maximum benefit with the fewest possible side effects. And then uh, the goal is to titrate back down to get it the lowest possible dose for the greatest possible effect. Now, the long-term um, outcomes are, it's more difficult to speak to that issue. I think that what we've seen is that Having a child who has improved ADHD-related uh, behaviors, they tend to function better in terms of academic performance, their peer functioning improves, family life and family functioning improves, um, certainly cross-domain uh, functional impairment. We see that very strongly, and the multimodal treatment of ADHD certainly demonstrated that. Um, however, when we look further out, uh, the MTA trials, looking at the eight-year follow-up, we saw that other factors were, were really better predictors of uh, functioning than the ADHD um, medication type or intensity. And some of those factors were related to the, um, the social and demographic factors, the community support, the familial support, the, um, the strengths that the child had around them, familial strengths. Those sorts of things are very, very protective um, of, of kids who have behavior problems. And I, I think something to, to keep in mind is that a child is developing by definition. <laughs> they are changing rapidly. And so symptoms that a child has early on and that might lead you to um, initiate medication for ADHD, that child is changing so rapidly that it's very, very important to reassess the treatment plan that that child has over and over and over again over the course of the child's development so that you can make the best informed decision about not only medication but adding or taking away other forms of treatment um, and really trying to bolster the, um, the resources that the child has so that they can function um, you know, as, as as um, well as possible as they enter into the teen years and young adult years when for most, um, most children who have ADHD, they will carry some symptoms of ADHD into uh, the teens and, and young adulthood. And so we need to prepare ourselves to not rely just on the ADHD medications, but to build in us, you know, the strengths and um, use a strengths-based approach to help them understand how they'll function best um, as they become young citizens, uh, managing this condition on their own. And it is a chronic condition. Uh, we expect to see that, uh, that children who are diagnosed will need supports probably well throughout their lives. Um, so I, I hope that that answered uh, that question, I think we're still struggling to understand the long-term outcomes uh, of ADHD and the long-term outcomes of medication treatment for ADHD. 
And um, given the rapidly changing patterns of treatment, I think what we knew from 20 years ago um, and what was happening in terms of treatment and looking at young adults now is very different from the young adults we'll be able to assess and evaluate for outcomes in the next five to 10 years. So I think that's still a developing story. And I'll, I'll come back in a few years and, and we can talk about that further. <laughs> We will remember you in, in several years because this is a question that I have a feeling will continue to be with us for some time. Uh, we have a question now from Sherry, and she wants to know what are the differences between generic and brand name medication and their safety? And I think with a lot of pharmacies and a lot of health insurance plans, really encouraging people to go with generic medications. What is the difference between these medications and when it comes to safety, what is the difference? Um, you know, I, I don't think I can speak to the safety issues uh, very well. Um, I, I can tell you only based on, on what I understand of, of it as a non-clinician that Essentially, the, the action of these medications are similar if you have, you know, if you're going, um, you know, medication per medication, so you're, you're comparing, you know, short-acting Ritalin formulation to a short-acting methylphenidate, for example, that they're essentially the same. They should function similarly. Um, but some of the brand name medications do offer other formulations that uh, allow you to really customize what you might need for the child. For example, um, short-acting medications are more likely to be misused and abused. And so if you're very, very concerned that you have a teenager who um, is, you know, is prone to sharing medication, abusing medication, it might be more, um, you know, more beneficial to you in terms of prevention to go with long-acting medications. Um, some of those things are not always available in generic forms, depending on your, your insurance company's formulary. So that's something that you can talk through with your physician and, um, you know, and, and discuss that. But in terms of, you know, matching things up medication to medication, my understanding is that the generic formulations tend to, to, to work just as well and tend to function similarly to um, non-generics, brand name medications. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Max, and he would like, he says that the American Academy of Pediatrics does recommend an ECG, an EKG, on an initial screen. Is this true? Um, again, I, uh, forgive me, my audience. The American Academy of Pediatrics does not recommend an ECG on an initial screening. Forgive me. Is this true? He, he wonders. He was wondering, is there, if there is a heart health history in the family, if that's known, is that sufficient? Uh, to make the decision whether or not to have an ECG. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, in the Diagnostic and Treatment Guidelines, um, 
it, it did not, you know, we stopped short of, um, of saying that uh, screening for, for a child, just any, any child who presents for assessment and, and treatment for ADHD, we, we did not say that an ECG was, was recommended or an EKG. Um, however, there are some exceptions, and, and certainly if there's a family history, if there's any sort of, of specific parent concern, I mean, an ECG really is cheap, safe, painless, <coughs> excuse me, and so I think that there are, there are reasons to uh, go down that path and, and have a screening, and that's something you should you know, consult with your clinicians on. But at the present time, AAP does not recommend um, necessarily cardiovascular monitoring um, before initiation of stimulants. Thank you. We are wrapping up now, and we were wondering, Ms. Vister, if you could just give us a very brief summary of what a person should do if they have further concerns about this topic, or if they have concerns about their own child or perhaps themselves employing medication. Where should they turn? Where can they get research? Who is a good resource for them to touch base with? Sure. Um, well, first of all, you know, thank you all for, for coming and listening today um, to hear a, a tale of ADHD in public health and, and hear how the public health system is working to ensure um, the public safety and also to try to improve the health and well-being of children with ADHD. Medication, your medication treatment, uh, anything related directly to clinical care, please do um, consult your child's primary care physician or the treating physician who's helping you manage your child's ADHD. If you are interested in general information about the um, patterns of ADHD, ADHD medication, you can either come to our website um, at www.cdc.gov backslash ADHD or um, we actually fund the National Resource Center, a program of CHAD, to provide evidence-based information to the public. And they have tremendous uh, resources there in English and Spanish. Um, the Ask the Expert chats, I think, are, are fascinating. I attend many of them. And I think that those resources are provided as a service of, um, of uh, public health to you as citizens to try to help get the best information, the most evidence-based information out to you. And if you have any recommendations for things that you don't see there that you really um, need from us that's non-clinical, because of course um, your uh, treating provider really is, is the best source for that information. But if there's more general information that we can help you find, please do let us know through either uh, the National Resource Center or through our public inquiry system here at CDC, and we'd be happy to get more information out to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Visser. This has been an excellent experience, and we have had a high level of participation from our audience. We have had some wonderful questions. With so much that has been said about medications for ADHD and the concerns for heart safety, we're sure that our participants have found your presentation to be very helpful, and we are very happy to have been able to have you as our expert today.
We hope you've enjoyed this broadcast. Please take a moment to send us your feedback through the survey that will appear on your screen at the end of this webcast. Please join us for our final segment in our Ask the Expert webcast encore series. On Tuesday, July 28th, we will be hosting a webcast presented by Judy Bass on discussing how you, what you can do to help your child with ADHD make the transition from high school to college as smooth as possible. This was one of our popular webcasts when we presented it, and we hope that you'll be able to join us for the special Encore presentation as many young people prepare to go to college or enter um, training programs. Thank you again for participating with us today, and we hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. And please, again, take a moment to complete our survey and let us know how we did.